Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canelli, and welcome back to Before the Lights Podcast, the show that tells you how they made their mark. He is dubbed the classic Blue Note and has a star on the Philadelphia Walk of Fame. An actor, singer, entertainer, songwriter, music producer, and even a minister. An internationally acclaimed musician with four gold albums, two platinum albums, one double platinum album, and two gold singles. A music and life coach who is now a best-selling author. He's the last remaining member of Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. Please welcome to the show, Jerry Cummings. Jerry, welcome to Before the Lights. Tommy Connelly, I am happy to be here. Glad for we glad that we made this connection, and I'm looking forward to all of the questions, and I think I got the answers. <laughs> well, let me start here. Happy belated birthday. Today is August 25th, and a couple days ago, you just turned 72. What a time. I mean, my son is here uh, from Orlando, Florida. My daughter's here from Toronto, Canada. And um, we're having a big pizza party at Aurelio's on Saturday. You know, and this, you know, 72 years old, um, because of all the things that are going on in my life at this point, I feel like I'm just starting all over again. Well, let's get into your life a little bit and back it all the way up. You were born in the red clay hills of Augusta, Georgia. You were supposed to be an aborted baby as your mother was given turpentine and gin. But here you are. Here's Jerry 72 years later. Well, the turpentine and gin, I guess I drank it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I was drunk before I got here. Um, but yeah, I was, my mother was 14 when she got pregnant. Mm. And I think that, um, there was an attempt to abort me because of this 14 year old young girl. And, uh, and also I found out, you know, who she was pregnant by. He was big time, you know, um, celebrity person, you know, and, um, and he would have been charged with rape. Mm. you know, at 14 years old. And so um, I have a family picture, Tommy, where uh, you can see my grandmother and my aunt hiding my mother in the back of them because she was seven months pregnant with me. Um, but, you know, uh, it didn't work. Nothing. I found out, you know, and I, I wonder how I could go all of those years and nobody never mentioned my father. How is that? What's the secret, you know? But, you know, it took a while, but it's like putting a puzzle together. You hear certain things, you know, like the first person, I'm, my grandmother took me from the hospital and took me straight to my aunt's house, you know, and I'm saying, well, she, she bypassed our house to go straight to my aunt's house from the hospital. Why? You know, um, and then I find out years later, why? Because that wasn't my aunt. For all those years, I call her my aunt. That was not my Aunt Frances. That was my sister. Oh. You know? And I'm saying, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Don't do this to me. And, you know, it's like it's like the movie Jumping the Broom. Uh, Angela Bassett played the young girl's mother. And then all those years, she went through college and everything. And then finally she finds out that Angela Bassett's sister is her real mother. You know? So it's like... I don't know, man. You know, it's 
I it took me it took me two or three months to get over this. I was grieved, you know. My aunt is my sister. Come on, my aunt Frances is really my sister. That's amazing. I give you credit. It had taken me about two years, not just two months, to get over that one. <laughs> I mean, it took me a while. I mean, because um, all I knew was my aunt Frances. You know, that's all I knew. So it took me a while. Um, to really get over it. Because let me tell you, what happened was my aunt had made me a bedroom in her home. So when I come to town, that was my bedroom. So I hang my clothes in the closet, of course, and my shoes on the floor. And one day I looked down to get my shoes and there was a portrait in the back of the closet. So when I picked the portrait up, I noticed that the portrait looked like me. And I said, now, wait a minute. Why does look? Why does this look like me? I said, Aunt Francis, Aunt Francis, who is this man in the closet in the frame? <laughs> she said, Jerry. She said, That's my daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Well, if that's your daddy, why he look like me? So I just let it go. You know, but she didn't say that's our daddy. She said that's my daddy, mm. and I said, Wait a minute. So finally. It all came out many, many, many years later. As a matter of fact, Tommy, you know, you're so on time. I found out that he was my father in 2023. Oh, wow. That's how long. I mean, I found out in April, May, June, July, August. I mean, you know, four or five months ago, you know, and so it burned me. I had had I had to talk to people. I had to talk to counselors. I had to talk to producers. And they said this always happened in families. You know, especially in the 50s, the early 50s. I was born in 1951. They said it always happened in families. You know, you find out that your aunt is really your sister and your uncle is really your daddy and all this kind of crazy stuff. But at least I found out. I'm glad you found out. No matter how long it took, at least you found out. But let me move on to here. At age four or five in that time period, you knew you wanted to be an entertainer after seeing your grandmother record C.C. Ryder. Tell me and my listeners about that moment for you. There was a guy who had a photo shop on Granite Street in Augusta, Georgia. And that's where everybody went to have pictures taken. And I used to go into the... um, the dark room and watch stuff being developed with him. I was three or four years old, you know, and, uh, and I was fascinated. Then he said, he said, he told my grandmother name was Florence. She said, Florence, I got a, I got a recording booth that you can make a record in. So she said, okay, let's let, I want to make a record. I'll do CC Ryder. And so I went in the booth with her and, uh, and I watched her sing CC Ryder. And, uh, and I said, I said, I said, I said, I said, Grandmama, I want to make a record too. She said, one day you will make a record. Okay. Uh, when the record finally came and I watched and I listened to it on the record player, I heard my grandmother singing on wax, you know, mm. and from that moment on, I knew what I wanted to do. Then I watched the Ed Sullivan show. Of course, I saw Elvis on the Ed Sullivan show. I saw uh, James Brown, The Temptations, and 
you know, and I, and that was another thing. I wanted to be on television. I wanted to be on TV, you know. Mm-hmm. So all of this was my dream. I used to dream about it. Now, I'm going to tell you what really got me. In 1971, I went to the movie to see Lady Sings the Blues with Diana Ross. And, you know, of course, she had the, the heroin problem. And, you know, they were trying to get her off of drugs. And finally, her manager said, we got Carnegie Hall. You know, and I heard that. I said, Carnegie Hall. I said, where's that? You know, and he said, they will love you at Carnegie Hall. You know, and, you know, he had that boy that, we're going to Carnegie Hall, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to know, well, I, you know, where's Carnegie Hall? Uh, so that was my dream. I said, I want to go to Carnegie Hall, too. And um, Harold Melvin was looking for a tenor. And the reason why was because all of the songs that was written that you hear us singing, like If You Don't Know Me By Now, um, Yesterday I Had The Blues, all the songs that we recorded were actually written for the Dells. Oh. They wasn't written for Harold, they wasn't written for Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. They were written for the Dells. But what Harold didn't know, my uncle Johnny Carter sang tenor for the Dells. So when he discovered me, I sounded like my Uncle Johnny Carter, and they were looking for a tenor that sounded like the Dells tenor, and I just happened to fit the profile. So one day he called me to Philadelphia from Washington, D.C., and he said, um, he said, I want you to come to meet me at the Fantasy Lounge, and we want to talk. I want to talk to you about something. And so I thought that he wanted to talk to me about my high school group because I had a high school group and we had won the Howard Theater Talent Show in Washington, D.C. And we sat down in the Fantasy Lounge and he said to me, Jerry, how would you like to be a blue note? And that blew me away because I didn't have a forewarning. No one told me what the meeting was about. And he said, with you, Jerry, he said, we have three lead singers. He said, we have Teddy Pendergrass, we have me, Harold Melvin, and you, Jerry Cummins. He said, we have a dynamic group. And the next thing I know, I was flying on Northwest Airline to Detroit, where he introduced me to Aretha Franklin. You know, and, and then we went from there on a Pan Am 747 to London, England where I opened with Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. I want to get to London, but first I want to back up a little bit because there's a part from the research I did that I think is a very important step in, in your success. And that is Harry Pierce Jr., your best friend who was killed in Vietnam in 1969. How did he push Jerry Cummings to become the singer? Oh, yeah. Harry and I, he was, we used to call him the world's fastest human, Bob Hayes. He was a track star. And uh, we used to play catch football in the park. And one day he told me, he said, Jerry, he said, I've been drafted and more than likely I'm going to Vietnam. And so he said, now, if I get killed in Vietnam, Jerry, he said, I want you to promise me you'll keep singing. He said, because one day you're going to make it big. About several months later, a friend of mine saw me and he said, Jerry, did you hear about Harry? I said, no. He said, man, Harry, Harry was killed in Vietnam. 
and it's in the newspaper. So I saw the newspaper article, which I have a copy of it even today. And um, and all I could hear him saying was, if I'm killed, Jerry, keep singing. One day you're going to make it. And about I could three years after that is when I met Harold Melvin. And but hearing his, I still hear his voice. It's like it was yesterday. This was 19, I think this was 1968 when he said that to me. And he was murdered in 1969 in Vietnam. And um, and so I met Harold in 1972. And I started recording with him even before I got in the group. You know, I was I was I was signed to Harold Melvin Enterprises. He wouldn't allow me to sign with uh, Gambling Hub. He wanted to be my record company, personal manager. You know, I didn't know anything about the business. You know, I didn't know that they teach you about your royalties. You know, I didn't know any of that. I didn't know there were gangsters there. <laughs> you know, I didn't know none of that. I'm just, you know, 21 years old. And I'm like, I'm, I'm like the new kid on the block. Um, but he protected me. And people say, well, you know, is it reported that Harold Melvin stole y'all money? And I said, if he did, I said, he gave me more than money. I said, he gave me an opportunity. You know, Jerry, you had said that you had opened with Harold Melvin, the Blue Notes in London, England. Explain to me and my listeners the love of R&B in London because I understand you guys had to travel like by armored truck and things like that. Yeah. That didn't happen in the United States. What was it like? It was like, like the Beatles were in America. We were like that in England. You know, um, the people in England have a great love for music. You know, um, our songs are still, we still got the number one disco song. In, in England called Bad Luck. And we did Bad Luck in 1974. <laughs> and it's still, a, it's still the top disco song in England today. It's still selling. You know, um, and I'm glad because my royalties come from over there. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but they have a love for music. Music don't get old there. Especially R&B, blues, jazz. I mean, none of the music gets old there. A lot of entertainers have left America and gone and moved to England, like uh, Sheila Ferguson of the Three Degrees. She lives in England. You know, well, you know, Tina Turner went over to Europe mm -hmm. and she stayed, you know. Well, they pay you more and they love your music. Barry White played England and uh, Bristol and uh, Birmingham and uh, different parts. He was he was a superstar, you know, and he was one of my idols growing up. Um, so the music never grows old in the United Kingdom and in Europe. It never grows old. It's it's still celebrated as though it just came out, Tommy, as though it was just released. Harold had given you a lot more than if he stole money, he gave you an opportunity. But he also named you the classic blue note. What's that mean to you? You know, one night we were at this home of a, of a well-known person and they had these beautiful chairs, you know, and I always wore suits. I always wore, you know, suits, shirt, tie, 
you know, especially when I was able to get out of polyester and with Gabardine and Isant Laurent and Pierre Cardin and, you know, and I wore the hats, you know, and I was probably the most dressed person in the group. And so I would sit in a big chair with the high back <laughs> with my suit on and Harold looked at me. He said, you are the classic blue note. You know? <laughs> and, and it stuck, you know, and, uh, and that, that became like a trademark for me. And I kept it. I said, well, not bad. And then uh, Lisa made the, um, the logo for it, the brand for it, you know, and she branded it, you know, and still is. And so it kind of stuck with me, you know, and I'm the only one that that's alive, you know, other than, you know, I don't know. People didn't know that Billy Paul, who mm -hmm. sung me and Mrs. Jones at one time was a blue note. Uh, they didn't know that Frankie Beverly, Frankie Beverly and May, they didn't know that he was one time a blue note. See, the blue notes go back to 1954. You know, and so I don't even call myself. I, Harold Melvin wasn't even an original Blue Note. He wasn't with the group in 1954 when the Blue Note started. You know, and so when people start talking about the original Blue Notes, the original Blue Notes, well, just because, um, just because um, Tom Brady is one of the greatest football players to ever play for New England, he's not an original quarterback. You know, quarterbacks before Tom Brady. Sure. You know, you had you had singers before Harold Melvin. You had singers in the Blue Notes before Jerry Cummings. You know, so to go, I have a picture of the original Blue Notes from 1954. And Harold Melvin wasn't there. <laughs> so they don't understand the, this business of music and how it really works, you know. I was recording with the Blue Notes before I was even put on stage with them. Because I was a recording artist. See, everybody that take a picture with the Blue Notes, it not, wasn't necessarily a recording artist. They may have been, they may have been a great dancer. You know, um, you know, they may have been a great choreographer, but everybody didn't record. I was a recorder. You know, uh, so I ended up producing a recording not only with them, but I ended up producing a recording myself. You know, It's My Pleasure was the first song that I ever produced on myself and wrote and sang. And I know I found it in Hong Kong in, in 2017. I wonder, how did my song get to Hong Kong? <laughs> I want to bring up your new music, but before that, you brought up T Teddy Pendergrass. Yeah. What was it like working with him? Because Teddy was, he was a bad drummer in the, back in the day. And I think people look at him as this vocalist, but Teddy was a drummer. What was it like working with Teddy Pendergrass? Now, now some people may not know this. I know Teddy was a better drummer than he was a singer. Mm. Teddy was the best drummer in Philadelphia. It wasn't Earl Young. Earl Young played on all of um, the uh, MFSB music, but Teddy Pendergrass was a better drummer than Earl Young. Now I know Earl would get mad if you heard me say that. You know, Earl is, I think Earl may be 82 years old now, but he's got all the gold and platinum on the wall. But I remember shows when Teddy would get off 
or the microphone and go get on the drums. And they got your attention. He's a great drummer. He was a drummer before he was a singer. Um, to work with him, I learned a lot, and we became best friends. I became like family with his mother, Mother Ida Pendergrass. If you search YouTube, Jerry Cummins sings to Mother Ida Pendergrass. I sang to her on her 100th birthday, you know, and um, and she cried the whole time. I sung a song called No One Compares to You. And she cried the whole song. Um, she passed away last year at 104 years old. I have a picture of her behind me up on the top shelf. Um, so we were like family. Um, we finally, you know, we, you know, we competed with each other on stage live. My tenor, his baritone. You know, like the Dells mm. with Johnny Carter and Marvin Jr. You know, um, so, yeah, he was a great, he couldn't dance now. <laughs> if you watch Teddy, Teddy was stiff as a boy. <laughs> he couldn't dance. But his voice made up for that. He could sing now. And, you know, he, he, he was a church boy. If you don't know me by now, it's nothing but church music with love lyrics. You know, yesterday I had the blues. It's just church music with love lyrics. You know, so I love this business. I thought I'd be retired by now. And and destiny fooled me. You know, you had brought up before, if you don't know me by now, and maybe some of the other songs our listeners may or may not know that Harold Melvin, the Blue Notes, did was The Love I Lost and Wake Up Everybody. When... Teddy left the group, Jerry. Was it a shock, and did it change the Blue Notes and everything that happened from there? Because it seemed like after Teddy went, the success that you guys had be, with, with him kind of left. Teddy Pendergrass was the greatest lead singer I ever sang with. Um, the night we were in the total experience in Los Angeles, and then there was a night when Teddy... We just me and him was in the dressing room. He said, Jerry, he said, I'm leaving the group. You know, I said, well, you do what you, what you, what you feel is right for you to do. Um, and he left the group and went on his own. Now, again, there are people who may not understand what I'm saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, and they can think about it later. Teddy actually outgrew the Blue Nose. Mm. He was that it's like it's like Smokey Robinson outgrew the miracles. Yeah. You know, um, there are artists that started out in groups who went on their own. Sam Cooke outgrew the Soulsters. You know, Sam Cooke sang with a group. You know, but then Sam Cooke outgrew that and he went out on his own. So uh you gotta know when to go. You know, I was faithful to stay with Harold even after Teddy left, put together another group, you know, because he was the one that brought me in and signed me to a contract. Um, and I loved doing what I was doing. And I learned a lot. I was in the studio, you know, with Gamble and Huff and Joe Tarsha, some of the greats, you know. I was able to meet all the entertainers that I grew up with. My mama used to have a picture of the Manhattans when in, in the early 60s. And I got to be on the show with the Manhattans in England, you know, until Blue Blue. I had a picture of you, 
which was one of your favorite singers? Um, Luther, when I started, you know, I had, I had gone to church and become rather religious and I had stopped listening to R&B, you know, and, but when Luther came out, <laughs> but when, when Luther started singing, <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, it was like, uh, I got to buy that cassette, you know, and I bought the cassette and I played it in my car, you know, and I just love Luther Vandraw, you know, and uh, I got a chance to to see him in Dallas at the Dallas Convention Center. Um, and he was my favorite crooner next to Barry White. Barry White was first. Mm. 1973, uh, I Got So Much to Give by Barry White. I fell in love with it. I still play it. I played it yesterday. Um, but uh, Luther was a great, great. Have you ever heard him sing A House Is Not A Home? And Dion Work was out in the audience and she was just crying. And he, he I mean, you go on YouTube and put in Luther Vandrop a house. It's not a home, and it will just fascinate you. He had a great voice. Mm-hmm. You know, he was Aretha Franklin's background. He was Aretha's background vocalist. Yeah, he was saying background before you ever heard of him. He sang background for Aretha, and he sang background for Dionne Warwick. He was a background singer. Wow. But he outgrew the background. See what I'm saying? <laughs> yep. Y'all grew background. Somebody said, man, you need to go on your own and sing, you know. <laughs> Jerry, after the Blue Notes, you worked at General Motors in Texas. How long did it take you to return back to music? I worked at General Motors for uh, 10 years. And finally, I took the buyout. Um, and um, I think Harold came through town and wanted me to come back to the Blue Notes, but I wasn't going back, you know. And um, but I, I stayed out of music for 15 years. By the time I came back, the, the the recording studio had changed. You know, we used to we used to splice tape, yeah, cut the tape and paste it together, right? Yep. Now you you just go on the computer and you fix it. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like I mean I was gone, but a guy in the studio told me in Dallas, he said he heard um. I have a song called Over the Woman, and I told Lisa to send it to you, but it's being it's being mastered again today. I'll get it to you. Okay. And he heard it back then, and he said, he said, man, he said, when did you do this? I said, I did this about 15 years ago. He said, let me tell you something. He said, you're ahead of your time. He said, why you got out was the reason why you got out because you got burned out. Because I used to be in the studio all night, didn't eat, recording, mixing, mastering. I would go in 
at five or six in the evening and come out daylight the next day. You know, that's how, but I, I did. I realized I got burned out, you know, and so I went to church. I went to church. There was some great music in the church, mm-hmm. great singers in the church. And then they had a musical and, um, and I, and they asked me to sing. And I sung a song called Walk Around Heaven All Day. They went crazy, you know, and I, I decided that I didn't want to just sing in church. I wanted to speak in church because I thought that I was a better speaker than I was a singer. And I can really now, thank God, I can do both. You know, I can produce, you know, because I believe this, Tommy. I think that we need a balance in life. I don't think we need to be all religion and don't listen to music, you know, um, I, I, you know, I think, I think we, sometimes people become too religious. I don't listen to that no more. That's the devil's music. That ain't the devil's music. The devil ain't never make no music. Well, he used to be the chief musician in heaven. Did you, were you there? Did you hear him? You know, <laughs> I, for, last I heard he got kicked out. You know? <laughs> he, he couldn't have been that great. So it's like, it's, it's like, um, I think we need a balance. I don't think we should get to a point where we don't want to hear uh, the love I lost and if you don't know me by now and wake up and we, I don't, that, that's too religious. You know, I don't think God wants us to be religious. You know, I just, I mean, he wants us to be righteous, but not religious. He wants us to have a relationship with him, you know, but uh, a relationship is not religious. You know, relationship means that we trust him. We love him. We acknowledge him. We we you know we we respect him. We honor him, and we thank him. I thank God. Look, I died in 2017 in a bowling alley. I fell dead from a from a massive stroke, and God raised me. It had to have been God, because if it would have been the devil, I would still have been dead. But um, God raised me from the dead. I had massive I had massive blood clots on both lungs. And they had a clot buster. My a cardiologist told me about the, the, cl- the clot buster, that they had to go up in me and bust those clots or I'd be dead in the morning again. And so that was 2017, that's six years ago. I'm healthier now than I've ever been in my life. You know, um, so um, can nobody tell me miracles don't exist? I'm a living miracle. I was supposed to have been aborted, remember? That's right. That's right. Every time and then, I, you know, I beat that. If I could beat that, you know, before I even came in the world, I could beat a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, yeah. what I want you to do is go to from gold to glory.com. Get your hands on Jerry's autobiography from gold to glory, which is in pre-production to be a major motion picture. You can go to the show notes and click a link that'll take you right there. And I bet if you ask real nice, Jerry probably even autograph a copy of his book for you and send it to you. Jerry, my, when I read the title, two things resonated with me was the word gold. Is that referring to the gold records or is that referring to materialistic gold? What is the word gold in the title in reference to? It's success. It's, 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 the, uh, it's success. Like when you get a gold record, that's success. That's mm-hmm. 500,000 copies sold. You know, a million. We sold one million copies of If You Don't Know Me By Now in one day in England. And let me tell you how that happened. 
We did it live on BBC Radio with the London Symphony Orchestra. We did it live on BBC. In 24 hours, a million records sold. That's gold. That's gold. That's gold. You know, and that didn't even happen in America. You know, but it happened in England in 1974. One million copies. And I had, you know, I never, I, Harold didn't even tell me that we was going to be performing with the London Symphony Orchestra. You know, we came out on stage and there they were. And they had these big monitors on the floor <laughs> and the strings and all of this stuff was playing. And I felt like I was being lifted up off the floor. It was so beautiful. You know, and then they tell me the next day, y'all sold a million copies of that song on BBC Radio. I got the I got the plaque on the wall in there. You know, so um success is not always how you see it or how you plan it. Sometimes it's a matter of being in the right place at the right time mm -hmm. and meeting the right people. You know, my producer for the movie was in the post office uh, about a month and a half ago and ran into a guy that knew someone. I can't, I can't give out his name because I have um, a non-disclosure. I can't talk about it, you know, but just being in, and so when she, so when she started telling the guy about the motion picture, you know, he knew the guy who, there's a guy who she picked to play me in the movie, um, young guy, you know, good looking guy, you know, um, Bruno Mars, that's the guy who she had picked to play me in the movie when I was young. Mm. Um, but she turned around, some said, go back and talk to this guy and get some more information. And she went back and talked to him and then all of a sudden, he hooked us up with someone. If I called out, everybody would know. But I can't call out his name, you know. But you will find out who it is. Um, but it's about being in the right place at the right time, you know, and and just having the vision and the dream to accomplish certain things in your life, and you find yourself. Um, I'm not a law of attraction person, but I've seen the law of attraction work in my own life. You know, I'm going to be, I want to make a record one day. Well, I made a lot of records. You know, um, I said it and now I'm seeing it. And it's just a matter of, I have a book, this book right here. And I know the audience can't see it. Maurice White or Earth, When It Fire. Asked me had I ever read this book called As a Man Thinketh by James Allen. And um, and I said, no. Well, that was in Canada when he asked me that. But then I went to L.A. And guess who I run into on Hollywood Boulevard? Maurice White. And where was he going? To the bookstore. And so I picked up the book, and, um, As a Man Thinketh. And I've had it <laughs> since 1974. And it's only 72 pages, you know, but, you know, it talks about dreamers, you know, and those, the, the dreamers and your dream and, and, and how if you um, think about and discuss your dreams that you will one day meet it, you know, and I found it to be true. You know, I don't, I read, 
And one thing that I know is a lot of people don't read. They like to look at pictures, <laughs> but they don't read, you know. And I think that comes from being a child. We used to love coloring books and we love pictures, but you got to read. I have a book back here called This Business of Music. This Business of Music, Harold Melvin gave me in 1973. This, this is, I think this is like the 11th volume. You know, and so I had to read, and it's small print, you know, and it's thick, but I had to read it, go over contracts, learn about publishing, you know. Um, and if, like what you do, you interview, you know, you're on the radio. Well, you had to study that. Mm-hmm. You had to learn how to run all that equipment, how to put it all together, you know. Um, and now you're the best. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that, Jerry. Let me ask you this, though. Your goal was Carnegie Hall, and you sang My Hero there on October 19th, 1974. How easy is it for you to put yourself back at that moment at Carnegie Hall singing that song? You know, it's 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 really blows my mind because Harold Melvin did not tell me that I was going to be singing my hero in Carnegie Hall that night. He didn't tell me. Well, I think he would have had a problem with Teddy too, because Teddy wanted to do all the singing, right? Teddy didn't want nobody to leave but him. So he didn't tell me. He didn't tell the group. He didn't tell nobody. But we, but I mean, but I had rehearsed a song for over a year with Harold. You know, one of the first songs that he taught me was my hero theme from the opera, the chocolate soldiers. Well, he knew Sid Bernstein and Sid Bernstein brought the Beatles to America, you know? And so he told Sid, he said, Sid, I got a guy, he said, I got a guy named Jerry Cummins from Washington, D.C. He said, he can sing my hero. And Sid said, get out of town. (laughs) He said, yeah, you know, because see, the Blue Nose had a hit song called My Hero in 1960, but no one has ever done it since 1960. So when he met me and taught it to me, he taught it to me for over a year. So then we go into Carnegie Hall, Sid Bernstein said, if you got a guy that can sing my hero theme from the opera, the chocolate soldier, he said, I'll be the presenter and the promoter for the group at Carnegie Hall. But he got to sing that song, but he never told me I was going to sing it. And next thing I know, I heard Harold say, my hero. I said, my hero, he said, Jerry, step up to the mic. Take your time. And I stepped up to the mic, and everything that he taught me came right straight out of my mouth. Came out. The people started roaring. And uh, what's the word they say? Um, Bravo. Bravo. They stood up, and then I saw Sid Bernstein and Clive Davis sitting on the front row. And they stood up. And I never, I sang it one other time after that in Ohio at a convention center. But um, they had put it away in a vault in Drexler University in Philadelphia. And Mike Tarja, Joe Tarja's son, before he passed away, he said, Jerry, they got my hero in a vault at Drexler University. He said, here's the guy's name that's over it. He said, call him and tell him that I said, for you 
to talk to him. So I, I called Drexel University, got in contact with the guy, and uh, and I told him who I was. And he said, well, Jerry, he said, let me look for it. So he called me back. He found it. And I said, um, I thought he was going to charge me maybe five grand to let me have it, or if he was going to let me have it at all. He said, Jerry, he said, since you performed this and it's here in the vault, he said, I'm going to digitize it and clean it up and send you the file. I said, well, how much is that going to cost? He said, absolutely nothing. He gave me the file. He gave me the file. So we cleaned it up. And um, I sent it to England and I got the chart. It went all the way to number one. (laughs) And listeners, you can hear it on any platform. I've listened to it on Spotify, along with Jerry's other new music called It's My Pleasure. Jerry, when was this song originally written? (laughs) Uh, It's so much to this story. I watch Harold so much because every time somebody would say, thank you, Harold, Harold would say, it's my pleasure. They say, Harold, I just want to thank you. He said, oh, it's my pleasure, babe. You know, it's my pleasure. And that's when I decided to write the song. It's my pleasure to love someone like you. And so I took him saying that and wrote that song, you know, and I let his wife hear it, I guess about, about, about seven or eight months ago, Ovilia Melvin. And she couldn't believe, you know, um, because when you hear, let me say this, and, I, and I'm, I'll be honest with you. When you hear me do It's My Pleasure, you hear Harold Melvin teaching me how to breathe, how to hold a note. You know, all of that is in that song. When you hear me sing, He was my mentor. He was my teacher. He was one of the greatest teachers I could ever have other than Roberta Flack. Because Roberta Flack was my teacher um, at um, Brown Junior High School in Washington, D.C. So I had some great teachers, man. Roberta, I got a picture with me and Roberta. I'll send it to you. Me, me, Me and Roberta and my daughter when she was very young. Um, so I've been I've been blessed uh, to be in the right place at the right time, you know, and to have some great people to to mentor me, including Barry White, including Barry Gordy, uh, including Roberta Flack, uh, including Harold Melvin. You know, um, I had some great people to mentor me and I give them the credit because I had to learn this. One of my very good friends, Antonino D'Ambrosio, just released his movie, Roberta, on Roberta Flack. Oh, really? It is fabulously done. I will get you a link. How do I see that? How do I see that? I'll get you a link to that, Jerry. I'll send that to you um, so you can watch it. It is fabulous. I mean, he did a, an excellent job with that. You're going to love it, especially if she was a, a teacher of yours. You're going to fall in love with this film. It is beautifully done. Hey, Brown, Junior High, Brown Junior High School in Washington, D.C. She told me, she said, you got a beautiful voice. <laughs> she told me that back then. Keep on singing. Then I went to see Mr. Henry's on, on 6th and Pennsylvania Avenue, where she played the piano at. 
and uh, did an interview in 2017 in her apartment upstairs over the uh, Mr. Henry's. Well, you see her playing the piano in the window. That's Mr. Henry's club. It's still there. You know, I used to go there and get the best draft beer on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and I was in my 20s. <laughs> so you spent 50 years in the entertainment business. What is your most proudest accomplishment? Um, just the opportunity to share the gift and to be able to share with young people who will listen, because most of them don't listen to old people, you know, to be able to share with them, I know how to make this work. But they already think they know. So I met, you know, I just had three artists that I spent money on and none of them worked out, you know, because it's more than talent. And I say this to everybody, it's more than talent. It's character you know a lot of people get all excited about a voice a voice someone who can sing i get excited about the character you got to be humble you can't be big-headed and think you know everything especially if you in your 30s and i'm 72 you know i've been there so i know how to get you there you know if you will listen and um, I had a guy sit here in my living room with his son, a country western singer, had great potential, you know. And then after I talked to him for an hour, I don't invite everybody to my home, first of all. And after I sat here for an hour talking to him and, and how we can make his son work and, and make his way. And he said to me, well, I just don't want to see my son get ripped off. And I said, well, there's the door. You need to go home, you know, because I'm going to, you're wasting my time, That's you know, right. That's and right. I, wasn't, I wasn't being mean, but if I'm going to take the time out with you, you know, to try to help you, and then you weren't about ripping off, I'm giving you an opportunity to, to make what you want to make, you know? Um, but my greatest moment in this business was when Harold Melvin said, how would you like to be a blue note? And I wasn't expecting that. Um, my hero, Carnegie Hall, I wasn't expecting that. You know, um, and then to be here with you, Tommy, <laughs> to talk about this is a great moment. Okay? This interview will go down in history. Well, thank you. It's a great moment. Cause what when Lisa gets through, when Lisa get through putting it out there, man, <laughs> boy, you're gonna be bigger than big. <laughs> Lisa, 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 <laughs> Lisa made a guy so successful, he called her and told her to stop. <laughs> That's now, always have a good you ever problem. Heard of such a thing? No. You getting too much publicity, you 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 selling too much stuff? He said he can't he couldn't keep up with Lisa. Lisa Finley is an angel if I ever met one. People, the book is called From Gold to Glory. Go to from gold to glory.com. Get your hands on it. Get the link in the show notes. 
and get your hands on the book. Jerry, I want to say thank you so much for taking time, coming on my show and talking about your life, your career, what you still got going on. This has been nothing but an honor for me. Well, it's an honor for me. And all these yellow books behind me are from Gold to Glory, and I autograph every one. When someone orders the book, I autograph the book personally for them. So let them know I got I got about 300 behind me. I can autograph them and send them out. You hear that, listeners? They're ready to go. All you got to do is click the link and get them purchased. I also want to tell you about my podcast docu-series, in support of Native American rights of the harsh and unfair treatment of the indigenous community. I did it with filmmaker Antonino D'Ambrosio. It's entitled A Heartbeat and a Guitar, Johnny Cash, and the Making of Bitter Tears. Go to the show notes to click a link to listen to the entire series. That's going to do it for this episode of Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin. <laughs>